Welcome back to this episode of Rock Rules. Today, I am delighted to be joined by a man who has written two of my favorite books of recent times, Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal, as well as Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, the official autobiography of the esteemed Van Halen, Doobie Brothers, and Van Morrison producer. He is Greg Renoff, and he is on the line with me now. Greg, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's it's my pleasure. I I'm just so in awe of anybody who can uh, really extrapolate on a subject to the point of writing a great book like you have. Certainly, the case with the Van Halen Rising, also the case with this Ted Templeman book. I mean, what is the secret to to writing something in such a long form? Is it just to love the subject? Yeah, I think. Uh passion for the subject is definitely something that sustains you through that. I, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, actually, and, you know, I could I could imagine getting paid a large sum, like an enormous sum of money to write a book about a topic I'm not interested in, and that might be the motivator. But I think, I think most great books come from a place where people really want to read them because the author feels engaged about the topic. And, you know, it could be writing about something that's um, you know, a uh, event in the past that's been horrific uh, about a war or something like that where it's a, it's a hard to, book to read, but if the person feels that the story is so important that it's worth putting the energy and the effort into it, I mean, I think that's that's really the secret for, for anyone who wants to do this or understand why you'd want to write a book like this is that you have a, you know, something you feel it's important that you really have a, a passion for the topic, even if it's, you know, something uglier side of life or something that's really, really pleasant and pleasurable. Like the Ted Templeman story for me was, it was just an amazing experience to work with him on it. And, uh, yeah, it sort of got me through, uh, any, you know, periods that were difficult. Whereas knowing that I was, uh, able to write a book about someone I had enormous respect for and someone who was, you know, even I didn't know him obviously 30 years ago, but it was massively important for my own cultural taste developing and what I loved about music. Mm How do you typically uh, typically go about writing books? I mean, do you like to write for a certain amount of time each day, or do you have some sort of process? Yeah, I mean, I think I think for for me, the the beginning is always about research. Uh, the The key is that I I sort of know is when it's time to really really start writing when I feel like I have a lot of the story mapped out through my research into my brain, mm-hmm. and so once that once that's, I get to that place where I said, okay, I've accumulated enough material. Again, these are the type of books that I write in terms of being histories that I can start to think about, okay, what's a period of the book that I know a lot about? And then I can work on a, a chapter. In other words, build from a place of strength going, I really feel like I know the most about X part of whatever story or book I'm writing. And then, uh, yeah, you know, you just, you have good days and bad days. I, hmm. I, uh, I certainly know that you have going to have moments when you you have a uh, just a, a kind of a sense of, of uh, despair almost that you can't get through a certain part, but then other days where the the number of uh, the number of pages seem to be amazing to you when you get done with the with the writing for the day, you say, "Wow, I've written six or seven, eight pages in one day," which is a lot, obviously. So mm-hmm. you know you have to be kind to yourself as well and just realize that some days it's it's uh, it's pushing towards a breakthrough of something else where you've you've gotten to. Uh, have three or four days it's really really a struggle but that's sort of building towards that sense of like okay you put all the pieces together for this one part of the story that seemed lost to you three days ago that you couldn't quite put together mm-hmm. the intro to this book really took me aback uh but it, it grabbed my attention and offered a context to the book that's really quite unique um of course i'm talking about uh ted talking about his family was it his uncle i believe yeah his uncle his yeah. uncle was uh yeah the beginning of the story for for the book yeah. How and when did you decide that this was the way that you were going to begin the book? Yeah, that's a really a good a good question. Um, you know, Ted was really shaped as a young man by the men in his life, who were a lot of them were who were uh, World War II vets. So Ted was born in '42. So many of the um, his uncles were were guys who had served in the military, and he would he told me this story about his his uncle his uncle Ted and then at some point he mentioned that he was named after him and then it, it sort of all kind of came together when we would talk about it over a couple of sessions and over a period of a couple of days we talked about it and I 
he, he you know mentioned about the Houston and that he was lost at sea and I was like so oh my gosh so you were named after him because they thought he was he was dead and uh, he said yeah and so for me I thought that really did a good job of sort of of making the context of Ted's childhood and how he grew up in you know in the World War II era and these with these guys around him many of whom shaped his musical tastes uh, some of his you know cousins and uncles and. I thought that was a, just a good way to sort of walk people into the story mm-hmm. in a way that was a little bit um, uh, unique. I thought mm-hmm. to sort of tell the story I, of, of it, it was, it was shocking in a good way. Yeah, it's uh, the story. I mean, the story is is shocking. Actually, it's really interesting about his his uncle who was lost at sea and then was a POW. I actually have a, a copy of a newspaper clipping that shows him getting off the Greyhound bus. His uncle Ted wasn't there, but it was his uh, his aunts and a couple of other people, relatives who were there greeting him. And he get off a Greyhound bus, and I just really st- struck by that fact that this guy went to sea on a, a USS uh, the Houston, a cruiser, and was this was basically in, I think January, February, I guess February 1942. It sank just three months after the war started, and he didn't come home until after the war was over. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you just think about that sort of that that effect that would have on a person and how um how much these guys these guys gave to their country it was really really kind of stunning and to know that that ted's relative ted's mother named him after named him ted thinking that this this man was dead that oh well i'm just gonna you know he's gone because there was no word of him and the ship was presumed lost at sea and there was there was no thinking there was going to be a survivor Mm -hmm. Uh, how, how much research were you able to do just by listening to the records that Ted made and uh, maybe by checking out the liner notes in a CD as opposed to really having to dig deep to learn about a band so that you could put the questions to him? Yeah, so the, you know, the, the records themselves had some, you know, sometimes had some interesting things where there'd be maybe a person thanked or something like that. But honestly, the way I learned the most about the records is that I had the opportunity to sit with Ted over a few visits to California and we'd listen to stuff. I, I, wow. I you know, it's funny, I like, uh, you know, and it, it, Ted where he was, his, uh, he has a condo in Los Angeles and he moves between his house up North and his condo in Los Angeles. And, uh, when I, I went to see him, it was in Los Angeles at his condo. He doesn't have a stereo. <laughs> so we're listening to like, like, like a laptop, like you would, you know, and he's like, I haven't heard this in years. And he's like, you know, listening and like, wow, you know, so again, this would be sort of, you know, um, basically second side tracks on women and children first or something that he just hadn't listened to um, in years. And so it was kind of remarkable to have him at first listen in a long, long time to some of the stuff and to have him talk about things. Oh, I remember this. And you know, uh, I don't remember this. And it would be, it would be really remarkable to kind of have the, we record the conversations obviously and to have his reactions to stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, even like stuff on the Clapton record, the same thing ended up happening. There was, um, he hadn't listened to a lot of the stuff that he did with Clapton on uh, behind the sun and you know he talked about one song in particular i can't remember which one it was it's in the book that he said the tempo i was like well you know what do you mean he said the tempo is not right and he's like i don't know why we did like he you know he was like we didn't get it right mm-hmm. and uh it was interesting to have those sort of firsthand reflections on things where he hadn't heard in years and kind of was able to have his own critique i mean he was basically critiquing his own stuff and that was one thing i thought was really uh really really um to ted's credit was that you know, he was never a person who felt like he had to put up a, I felt a false front of, of sort of like I, everything I did was good. He would say, I screwed this up pretty frequently. Like, you know, things like I'm like, well, it's sold, you know, it's sold 1.5 million copies. Hmm. I mean, screwed it up. He's like, I didn't get like the whatever, you know, whatever record it was, Aerosmith or, yeah. you know, they didn't sell that many records, but whatever. Sometimes even with like the Clapton record, which was considered to be a massive success at the time, he was talking about the flaws in it that we didn't get this right or we should have done this and meaning he and his co-producer. So I thought that was really refreshing and that's how I really learned the most by sitting with him um, you know he would email me as well and send me things but just and then to be able to um, go back with him about some you know hey I, you know Ted have you heard this or listen to this and we really would, would get into some of the records mm-hmm. was there any one of those sessions in particular that that stands out for you when you sat down and listened to something with him I know we're both Van Halen guys maybe it's one of those records yeah I mean I listened to like uh, you know we listened to the uh, you know ain't talking about love a couple of times mm. probably why probably more than a couple of times but he just kept talking about oh this is so this is so great and then he would <laughs> keep, you know basically that song for for ted is is his favorite song he ever did as a producer 
And not only that, I think he really made clear to me that it crystallizes the brilliance of Van Halen for him because he talks about how how Ed played the riff. And I didn't, you know, Ted's a, Ted's a musician and the way he was explaining it, I'm a, you know, a quasi guitar player, but he was basically talking about the way there was a certain feel to the way Ed played the riff. And then talking about, of course, Dave's lyrics and Dave's delivery. And he just was, you know, sort of able to really express. And I, you know, I put all these conversations in the book that this to him is what made Van Halen great. And, you know, that, that type of, first-hand take from Ted was really uh, amazing. And, yeah. and uh, you know, it's as a fan, I'd listen to that song so many times. But <laughs> yeah. when you have the producer there with you saying this and that about the about the lyrics and about Dave's vocal delivery and about um, how just how, how much this song affected him, going, this is so brilliant, this is so brilliant. And it was really, really amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just as you bring that up, what jumps out to me is the explanation of the drum intro on Hot for Teacher, which has been hotly debated for so many years. And then once you hear or read Ted say that uh, the very, very beginning is the like the engine or the exhaust of uh, a Lamborghini or wherever it was, you can't not hear that. It becomes so obvious to you and you wonder why for all those years you didn't know what it was. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I won't, I, uh, I won't out the person who said this to me, but there's a I'm a a friend with a guy who uh, had some success, good big success actually, as a as a musician in the late '80s, early '90s, and he's he's texting me, and he's going, all my drummer friends, like, and these are industry people who you would know the names, are like pissed off about this, and you know, basically they don't agree or they, you know, it's just, it became this, this point of debate. And I'm, you know, I just got to tell people like, <laughs> look, that's what Ted remembered. You know, um, obviously the album was made under some duress and there was, you know, um, you know, I, uh, we haven't heard from Alex or anything about it. Um, but yeah, that's what, the way Ted remembered it. And so it's really, it was, it's interesting. Um, you know, once he, he listened to it, he goes, I think Don did something here. And he's like, listen, and he goes, Oh yeah, that's the car. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, that was his, but he, he did tell me that they did a lot of stuff messing around with the car. Yeah. That there was, you know, there was like a lot of just experimenting and doing different things with the car. And that was the one, you know, he said that, and he particularly said, as I said, the book, he said it took Don a long time to basically find a spot from right. what Don, Ted recalled it, was find a spot in the recording of the car mm-hmm. that would was the right tempo. That Al could repeat. With. Yeah. Right. That would, 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 would fit with the drum intro. And yeah. So, um, um, and again, I, you know, the thing that's interesting, like really quickly, is that the, uh, you know, the, the, again, what I've heard secondhand from from uh, this friend of mine, he's talking about these drummers from who are successful drummers who are aggravated about this somehow. It's just I don't I don't see why it doesn't take anything away from what Alex did. It just sort of was a cool sleight of hand that those guys did that they were so being so clever and so experimental by being at fifty one fifty. And that's the other thing I would would mention to people too is that Ted, you know, for as much as um, contentious as the making of the record was if you note in the book ted says if we made it at sunset sound it wouldn't have come out that way Mm -hmm. and and ted means that as a as a compliment to ed and all those guys that they you know by having as crazy as the making of the record was by having the studio they could do a lot of the stuff that sunset sounds had never would have let you know you never could have recorded the car at sunset (laughs) sound and, and kind of done it like that right they never would have been able to do that type of um work so uh another little i think uh tip of the hat from ted to ed and and al and those guys for doing that type of stuff Mm -hmm. it was interesting to me how much we got to know ted from the stories he told and the opinions he gave about the music but actually a lot less from what ted said about himself um why do you think the book came out that way you know, when we when we sat down to talk about it, I mean, Ted really at first was was reticent to write a book. Um, and he was just you know he just wasn't into it, and I think in part because he doesn't want to be the guy. And we can all imagine people like this who are sort of walking around, living off their achievements, and sort of trying to to leverage that by some sort of book or something. I don't know how to explain it. Like, you know, basically, you know, this sort of like, oh, a tell-all book that talks about mm-hmm. how bad X and Y, Z was and just sort of to make it like a, you know, a TMZ dramatic, not that Ted comes to that level, but yeah. you, I think you got, you know, my point. And, uh, you know, he's got children and he's got a, a, a wife and, you know, I said, so look, I said, 
that's not right. You know, I have to write about that stuff. I mean, I, in terms of whatever stuff um, that was sort of private and you know, good or bad. I think I think I made the decision as a writer, and Ted, you know, kind of went with that. That you know what, he's got he's got grandkids and stuff like that. It doesn't need mm-hmm. to be that type of you know. It, it's kind of and we, I always who who wants to tell the salacious stuff at that point in their life. Well, I mean, right, and it's sort of like there wasn't even like whatever. There was, there's, there's, no, there's no there's no necessity there's no necessity for it either. The music tells the story, sure. right? And there's there certainly were stories that like you know would raise your eyebrows about anybody who lived who was in the industry that long. There's stories that were interesting and like wow, that was you know. But um, I really felt strongly about that that it was it was meant to be a life in music, and it wasn't meant to be like a life in like whatever, like you mm-hmm. know, just you know that type of a book, and so. You know, I've never met Ted's children before, and you know, I just out of out of respect to them and his grandchildren and stuff, you just figure like it's not. Does anyone really care? I mean, ultimately, about reading about X thing that you know X record producer did in nineteen sixty three or whatever. <laughs> you know, look like, whatever. Like when he was like on the road with. You can imagine he was on the road with Harper's Bazaar when he. <laughs> yeah. Like you could have kind of imagined there was stuff that went on. Like you know, he had a, they had he had a great life. He lived you know had a great life. He was a pop star and like all this other stuff, and he was a powerful record executive. But it's just. Yeah, I mean, I just think it was, you know, I've heard I've heard people critique the book that way, and that's a fair point. Um, but I I wanted to make sure, as the person telling the story, that it was it was something that his children or his grandchildren would read and not feel mm-hmm. violated in, in some sort of way by basically going, I don't want to know this about my, I don't know how to explain it. And yeah. then, and again, I, don't make, nope, I, I don't even make mean to make it sound like there's like was like I just. It just wasn't like there wasn't like there was like all this stuff, but it was just yeah. sort of like you know what that wasn't this, the way the wind was blowing. Yeah, it just was. It just was meant to be. It was meant to be. About, I mean, that was that was our deal. I yeah. told him I was going to write a book about the records and about the music, and he agreed to that. It was not meant to be like a Ted Templeman tell-all biography right. about all this. It was meant to be. I was a record producer. I got to work with these amazing artists, and he was very adamant about. I want to pay tribute to these people I worked with because yeah. they're the ones. Who did it? You know, ultimately, like they're the ones who did the performances, whether it be Clapton or the Doobie Brothers or Carly Simon. He wanted to pay tribute to the the incredible talent. Again, again, like the session musicians and all the people he worked with, he wanted to pay tribute to them because he knows that scene is gone. It's over. It's never going to be like that again. You know, so. And and to be clear, for anyone who has not yet read the book, that is not a slight on the book whatsoever. Uh, the books were already already like four hundred pages or something, and it's it's packed to the brim full of great stories about about the music. I don't even see how you could want much more. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. I just it's just it's interesting. I mean, I think um, I, I this is my own personal soapbox here. It doesn't have anything to do with the with the book. It's sort of I'm you know I'm even even if somebody wanted to write a book, I'm writing with. You know, John Smith, musician, famous musician, who wants me to tell their story. I would have urged them to kind of play down the sort of salacious stuff too. It's just, it's just played out. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think there's, there's plenty of books like that, and I'm not even, you know, we all love the dirt and these other books, and I'm not critiquing those books. I'm just saying it's been done. It's like trying to make yeah. another shark movie, right? There's Jaws. You're gonna make another Jaws. I mean, you can't, you can't top it. You know? like, it's just, nobody can do debauchery better than like Little Richard, anyway. So it's way, sure, it's been way right, done. Right, right, right. You're not gonna, you're not gonna top that. So <laughs> it's sort of, yeah. Um, that was my, you know, and so that was easy for us to to come together on. And he was, you know, he's um. The other thing I would say about Ted is that anyone who um, has kind of you know, search online for Tad. It's like, he's a private person. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's not living a public life anymore. So that's the other thing too. It's not like he has some sort of like looking for like a final act as a producer was like, I got to write this book to be a couple, you know, it just, so I wanted it to be something that um, he would feel did justice in a, in a way. And actually he, I talked to him recently and he said that what was really nice, he said uh, that uh, everyone I've heard from has loved the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and again, these are industry people. These are people he worked with. These are, these are names you would know. Um, and so for me, knowing that artists that he worked with read it and felt, you know what, this was this was a nice tribute to our work together and doesn't make anybody feel like shit because they've read this book and they're like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, maybe someday someone will read something and they'll come to Ted and say, hey, I wish you hadn't printed that. But it was, you know, we were we were trying to be respectful of people he considers his friends yeah you know um that's the thing too it's just the people who he has friendships with and it's not you know meant to be like a 
a stepping stone to something where it helps Ted, but like, who cares about the other person? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're probably going to center around Van Halen here because that's the subject I know best and probably probably the same with you, Greg. Um, Ted himself states that like he basically falls in love with Eddie Van Halen as a musician as soon as he hears him. Do you think it's fair to say that no one else that Ted encountered in his career really approached how moved he felt by Eddie's ability? Well, I think... You know, Ted talked about Ed as this guy who ranked with the jazz greats that he grew up watching. The real, real, and it talks about that in the book. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think, I think I would, I would say in response to that, that Ted had a real appreciation for the greats. And I don't mean to slight anybody, but the guys he would consider kind of the, the focal points of some of these bands that he worked with. So from like a Tom Johnson, you know, because Tom wrote those songs and talks about Mike McDonald and, you know, mm-hmm. when Mike wrote those songs and, and uh, Lowell George um, and Ed the same way. I think Ted really, you know, saw Ed Van Halen as a guy because of the virtuosity and because of the music. He talks about the, the songwriting, the technical stuff, the musicality, um, you know, to Ed was in a kind of a special category particularly because of the virtuosity because Ted was drawn to that. But, you know, I think throughout the book, Ted really tries to draw attention to, you know, I guess just the the magic of songwriting and how Mm -hmm. hard it is to write a hit and then to have certain guys who had written, you know, again, Michael McDonald, the Tom Johnson, you know, Lowell George who wrote multiple timeless songs I mean, that's for Ted was like the thing too, especially coming out of a band. If you think about it with Ted, who was in Harper's Bazaar mm-hmm. and they didn't write their own songs and the songs they wrote weren't very good. And that Ted will tell you that himself. I mean, they weren't, you know, they were never, no one's ever going to look at a Harper's Bazaar original and go, wow, this is like, you know, this is legendary stuff. No slight to those guys. It's hard. You know, they wrote some of their own songs, but they did a lot of covers, you know, and I think that's the thing that Ted recognized too, is that the greatness of the songs as a guy who grew up as a song obsessive. I think that was the thing, whereas it was Ed was, again, with the musical virtuosity, separated him along with the songwriting and the, all the other things. Um, I think Ted would put, a, uh, put Ed on a pedestal because of that. But mm-hmm. for, for, for Ted Templeman, it was, this, it was that songwriting ability, too, and that special thing that kind of made those guys great. Yeah. The Van Halen dynamic is, is sort of typically complicated. Uh, there were always rumors that Ed was close to walking away from his own band during the making of Fair Warning, which was, uh, well, it came out in 81. Um, and Ted notes conversations where he told Ed that he would back him if he wanted to do that. Um, it almost seems like there's points where Ted felt that maybe Ed was even too good for the band. And yet Ted also says that the band never would have made it without David Lee Roth's own genius. So like I say, a really complicated dynamic here. Yeah, I think I think that's you know that's conversation that happened at Sunset Sound. You know, I've really not seen too many people focus on that conversation, and I don't know why. Uh, Van Halen fans, if you read it and the way I took it from Ted, you know, Ted isn't really looped into a lot of the stuff that sort of becomes the the Van Halen fan slash history stuff, where it's about like Ed wanted to leave fair leave fair you know the band during fair warning, he was really frustrated. And if you sort of read that and kind of read what the context of that conversation is in the book, and I won't spoil it, let people read the book, mm-hmm. it kind of changes. And again, it may not stand the only conversation they had like that, but it kind of changes the context of what was actually making Ed unhappy at the time. Um, yeah. And Ted said that was like a super emotional moment for him that he, he felt at the time that um, again, I will spoil the book. I'll let people read it, but that there was some, some stuff going on within the band that, was really unfair to Ed and he's wanted to let him, yeah, let him know that if you, if you make the decision basically with the record label, I'll back you. He may basically be, you know, you know, he's not going to, he was basically going to say that I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll back you if, uh, you want to do that. So, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about that in terms of the, the larger stuff about Ed was unhappy during fair warning and, you know, but, um, there also is the the uh, I think that album also represents the beginnings of Ed wanting to sort of stretch out and do more elaborate uh, compositions and sort mm-hmm. of think about layering guitars and the sort of the stuff that kind of culminated with um, with 1984 with yeah. the 
with the way that record was made. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Alex Van Halen is a, a very interesting personality if you're a Van Halen fan. But comparatively, Ted doesn't say a great deal about him. What what impression did Ted leave with uh, leave you with about his feelings towards Alex? Uh, the the Noel Monk book obviously came out on on Van Halen in the last few years, and there's sure. there's plenty to question about that book, perhaps. But that really paints Alex as quite a disruptive and almost dangerous influence on the band. Um, how, what is your feeling towards Alex from all your conversations with Ted? So, you know, I think I think it should be evident from the book that Ted and Ed were a lot closer than Ted and Al, mm-hmm. and and again, I don't mean that as some sort of you know commentary on Alex. I don't I don't um, mean it that way. I just think that was the way he sort of he sort of spent I think more time well than anybody in the band kind of talking to Ed than even more than Dave in some ways. Um, you know what he did tell me about Alex was that Alex was a guy who had really really good ideas in the studio that Alex was sometimes a lot of the guy who would sort of say things and and Ted would be like oh that's a really really good idea and some of that stuff ended up on the record. Um, Ted talked about him in in the way that said, he said, you know, sometimes Alex is almost like an associate producer on some tracks that he was really, really smart when it came to arrangements and things like um, and things like that. I mean, I think the thing that um, Ted also thought about in terms of, you know, in terms of Alex was the um, was the relationship between the brothers. I mean, it was definitely contentious and I don't think that's any sort of like, I mean, Ted told me stories and everybody knows these stories they fought. And so that. That was definitely something that was was part and parcel of the relationship and the, the sort of personality um, issue within the band. So, you know, for Ted, I think it was sort of his again his 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 focal point, his sort of entry point into the band in a lot of ways was his relationship with with Ed. The other thing I, w- I would say is that um, you know Ted talked to me a lot about how he thought that Alex got stronger that he Alex was an excellent drummer who got better and better over time like mm-hmm. actually he thought like in you know, like we listen to Diver Down a couple of times he's like man this stuff, he's like he is so on it and he talked you know basically talking about how um you know all these guys just from playing so much went from being incredible musicians to be even better musicians you know Ed sort of his musicality and his creativity kind of went different directions and he, he really did give a lot of praise to Alex and again I'm not sure that totally came through always in the book the right way but he was basically saying that like Alex was always a great drummer, and he by the you know by the uh, by the last albums they did together, it was like especially Diver Down. He, he would talk about how like man, like the sound, the drum sound, the performances, the whole thing. He was like just killer. And, and again, Ed's a, uh, Ted's a drummer, mm-hmm. so um, you know that's that's high praise coming from Ted because there was plenty of stories that he told. Some of them came in the book that you know basically guys who couldn't cut it in the studio, and Alex was never that, never even close to that guy. But basically. Ted wasn't a guy who just gave out drum compliments like willy nilly. He was a drummer who cared about tempos and the other stuff. Yeah. If you're a true Van Halen fan, it's difficult not to talk about Michael Anthony's contribution to the band, both through his bass playing and, you know, especially the background vocals. Ted made a point, he made a point a couple of times to note that Michael had not just the skill, but also the temperament required to give Van Halen what it needed at the time. Um, Clearly, Ted didn't think Michael could so easily be substituted as perhaps even Eddie felt at the time. Right. Right. Um, you know, and it's interesting because a lot of, for people who talk, you know, talk about the, like, for example, the Billy Sheehan replacement thing, Ted never brought that up. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I didn't bring it up because I, I could tell like it wasn't even on his radar. Like he never even like crossed his desk or even became a thing. And so, you know, he was always, um, super appreciative of Mike because again, the temperament, but also, I mean, he, you know, uh, I think sometimes people think that, um, uh, you know, whatever it's like, it's just like everyone just praises Mike to praise Mike because Mike's a nice guy. But Ted talked quite a bit about his playing being so dead on. And, um, I think I put it in the book. He said it had, you know, he read, Ted had read interviews in later years where Mike had said like, I wish Ted had worked with me more. And he was like, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like, you know, I, I, I regret that too. But the thing was, he was like, I didn't have to worry about him. Like yeah. the other parts of like whatever in the band, the band dynamic and sort of getting things right. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Like, you know, exactly, exactly. And he was like, it was, it was good. You know, it was like the vocals were incredible. The bass that, you know, he could play. It was like, he was like the perfect band guy. And so, um, yeah, Ted was really appreciative of, 
of Mike. And, you know, and, you know, has, has, uh, I should say as well, he said to me numerous times how much he admires Wolfie as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that didn't come into the book cause it's not relevant to the, it was, you know, Ted was long out of the, out of the loop with that stuff. But, um, but he has told me like listening to some of the newer, the different kind of truth stuff, just like, he's like, Oh my God, kid's a monster. It's like, he's a monster. And so it's, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to have that come full circle. The stories of David Lee Roth and Ted not wanting Eddie to play keyboards uh, have been around for years, but in, in the book we get quite a lot of context. Ted saw them as a heavy band, and the synths were just an antithesis of that? I think that's fair. I think the other thing that Ted thought was that, and he, he puts this in the book, he said, we had this incredible signature situation, which was that you had this vocalist, who is unique, who writes these amazing lyrics, and you had this guitar player who no one else in the whole world can play like. No Mm -hmm. one else can play like that. So why would I basically want this guy who can play like nobody else in the world on guitar to play on an instrument where, and he didn't mean this as a criticism of Ed, but it's just like, it's not going to be like leaping out of the speakers going, that's Ed Van Halen on keyboards. Mm -hmm. And so that was, I think, Ted's thing, where he's thinking, what makes an artist identifiable what makes them when somebody listens going on the radio go oh that's van halen yeah it's the roth the roth vocal and the ed van halen guitar and so that was really the the thing for for ted was that he's like why would we disrupt you know i you know i guess the the way to think about it would be like it and again i don't mean this as a, a criticism of anybody it'd be like it'd be like you know if you know, if Michael McDonald wanted to start playing guitar on stage or something like that, it's like, mm-hmm. well, you play electric piano. Like, why would you, like, well, you play piano. Like, why would you do, like, I don't know. There's, there's a whole host of examples you could think about in his head. So Ted took it, you know, that tact on it. And I, as you, anyone who reads the book should read that that was, that caused, I think, understandably, and Ted understands this, um, hurt for Ed, that Ed felt hurt by that. But he didn't mean it as to something that was going to be a criticism of him. Mm-hmm. You know, and it basically actually was a kind of a compliment to say, you're the greatest in the world at this. Right. Like, you can do this too, but like, why would we not, you know, that? so that was, I think, um, Ted's take on it. And as Ted said numerous times in the book and was really adamant to me about this, he's like, the thing is, we put the songs on the record. We did, mm-hmm. like, we, I, you know, we didn't, he's, you know, he was very interested in kind of telling me that, and we got that in the book, that it's like, you know, I never said, no keyboards or I'm not producing if you do keyboards. Basically, you know, we worked on the songs. We worked on all weight, we worked on jump, we worked and you know, talking about jump particularly goes, we worked so hard on that that, you know, um that the basic ideas were they were basically experimenting and like he's you know, he, I guess what Ted was trying to say was like, even if I didn't necessarily think this was the best approach in terms of the band's direction, I gave my all to trying to make it as great as I could be. Mm-hmm. as it could be you know don did ed did they all did but he basically saying i was all in on okay ed wants this song on the record i think it's 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 a cool song i'm not sure it's right for van halen i'm all in though i'm making it as, as amazing as we can mm-hmm. you mentioned i'll wait there and one of the great chapters of the book concerns david lee roth having the help of the doobie brothers michael mcdonald with the with the lyrics on i'll wait and i guess the melodies right. as well i find this right. fascinating like the one time that we know of sort of on the record that roth was totally bamboozled about what to say yeah it's it's you know and i think part of that came from the fact that um i you know it sounded from what i understood from ted it was that Roth was even more down on all weight than Ted was, and Ted didn't like it at all. And then Roth <laughs> really didn't like it, you know. So, um, but once again, once you think about the melody and the way the song is written, you can kind of hear it. In fact, Don Landy told me himself some point after the book was done, and you know, I wasn't going to put it in the book because this was Don's story. That um, Don remembers distinctly them being stuck, and that eventually Dave. And Ted presumably came back to the studio with the tape, which was the the work tape of Mike McDonald working in Ted's office with Dave there and Michael McDonald singing. I'll wait, mm-hmm. you know, basically, uh, you know, singing the chorus. And Ted, Don said, when we heard him go, that's it. That's it. Wow. That's it. Like they couldn't quite have the breakthrough. And so it's like, you know, like Mike put that final you know, those final pieces in place to finish the song. Because Ted, you know, Ted said it was like they had the, the patterns there, but the pieces Basically, the song had not been constructed, and Mike basically er- 
arranged the parts and then wrote um, some of the melodies and, and helped Dave with the lyrics. Like Dave wrote, I think, you know, most of the lyrics, but that, and I talked about in the book, but that Mike it was the kind of the guy, the song doctor to kind of come in and go, okay, here's what I hear and here's how we can get from this, which is a really, really great song idea to a finished product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and these days, you know, we've all heard John Panama Hover teachers so much. I mean, I'll wait is one of the first tracks I go to on that album if I'm listening to it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I always think that like the, the thing that I put this, when I listen to the song, this guitar solo is just so mm-hmm. stellar. And I now I want to listen to it. Of course, I think back on what Ted said. It's like the song itself, the keyboard pattern, and the the, the the composition. You know, it's it's cool, and it's Eddie Van Halen playing keyboards. But like the solo is so incredible. I think it almost like for me, like like it absolutely reinforces what Ted was saying. It's like the guitar playing. It's like oh my god, it's so. I don't know. It's just you know, it's it's so otherworldly how amazing it is. That's the the kind of the, the was the you know the, the tension for Ted that was there with that stuff. And mm-hmm. um, but it's you know it's it's certainly captured where Ed was at and where he was headed musically in terms of what came later, fifty one fifty. And so you know you can't you can't repress the creative urge. And I think that's the, the you know the the lesson of that too is that those that was where he was going and he wanted that material on the album. And uh, whether Dave or Ted were you know voting yes, it was it was the right move to put it on the record because it's, you know, it did well on the radio and, and it's uh, certainly a song I still hear on classic rock radio very mm-hmm. frequently. Yeah. Well, we knew that Eddie and Don were bunkered deep in 5150 to get the album done with almost no outside influences, including Ted, they were trying to keep him out. Um, but Ted brings up in the book that there was a, a safety master of the record that he owned. How far along was that master in the process? You know, was it, a couple of months back or how close did Ted have uh, come to actually having to use it? I don't, well, yeah, I don't know the, um, you know, that stuff I had to really sort of talk to Ted about in a lot of ways. I mean, the thing that Ted told me was that he went to Sunset Sound and did a mix of it with, uh, with the head engineer for um, Lee Hirschberg, the head engineer for Warner Bros brothers and i was mm-hmm. like well what like we're talking like wait what and he kind of went through the story about the tapes couldn't get the tapes and stuff like that so i don't know how far back it would have been i mean i would imagine um there were overdubs and things that ed was experimenting with and again this is i just as my assumption yeah in part because they were keeping the tapes from him and they were still working they were still make whatever they were doing um you know but ted was the first one to say like it wouldn't have been as good no it, it wouldn't have been a good it was just like a it was like an absolute like break glass in terms of emergency if yeah if, the tapes got lost, like really <laughs> lost, or it got burned, or what? You know, um, the but the thing that's that was remarkable to me about that is that the uh, <laughs> the fact that that even came to that really shows just how just how contentious things got at the end. That yeah. like that would be something like you know that would actually be like okay, um, I can't get the tapes, and we have to deliver this record. You know, um, of course, the other thing that, that kind of goes without saying is that it was a super important record for Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, the 1983, if anyone knows the history of the music industry, was a tough year for the music industry. There were uh, just there were you kind of can read it and going through Billboard magazine. There were a number of factors kind of working against it. There have been some flop albums and the quote unquote home taping had started. And there was a, you know, a sense that, oh, you know, um, there was a. a just a worry that the sort of they were in sort of going sort of like a musical recession, so to speak. And, uh, you know, it was an important record for Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers had not had a great 1983 and they really wanted that record because Van Halen was their, one of their platinum artists. So that was it was it wasn't as if it was some like random Warner Brothers artist didn't deliver the record. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, it was a it was a thing. But um, yeah, yeah, they, it was a there was a separate mix that I think is long since gone. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, oh, my God. You know, I'd be desperate was, to hear it. Yeah, I, it's um, Ted doesn't it, have it, and it'd be amazing actually, as an artifact. Fact, I will tell you, I know for a fact that it is not in the Warner Brothers archive. So I think it was just sort of like, oh, we don't need this. I don't know if it was called out of the Warner Brothers archive. My guess it was it was never like it was just like okay, the album's out, put it in the trash, like yeah. that type of thing. Like it was never like you know it was just meant to be like a um, an emergency thing. But yeah, it's it's a crazy. It's a crazy story. Um, mm-hmm. It really is a crazy story. <laughs> and, you know, and Dave and Roth was, if you read about in Roth's book, Roth talks about how he was there. He was at the alternate mixing session. Wow. I've forgotten that. 
with Ted. It's in it's in his book. You know, um, so you know, it's just is this the uh, the way that it all went down? Yeah, it's I you know, and and Ted spoke about this in the book as well. I mean, he definitely has he wishes it hadn't gotten like that. He just you know he he's like thinking about I wish I could what could I have done? I wish I could have done things differently that mm-hmm. it hadn't gotten where Don and Ted got this you know this alienation from each other, and then Ed and Ted. There was a sense that they like that that Ted was against those guys. It's like I was never against them. Mm-hmm. You know, we just had a dude had some difference of opinion. I wish they just sat down with me and just said, here's what we think. You know, I was not going to like, I, mean, I guess Ted's point was we always worked pretty collaboratively. And, you know, maybe they saw it as from a different perspective. Obviously, Ted was the vice president of Warner Brothers and a producer. So it was going to be a different, a different, their perspective is going to be different. But Ted always felt like he was never going to, you know, he was not going to pull rank on guys he made five albums with who were considered his friends. You know, mm-hmm. he was not going to be like, well, I'm the producer. You got to do it this way. So, yeah. Uh, obviously, I admired Ted Ted's work greatly, but I must say I was taken massively aback with the story that he decided that he wouldn't work with Van Halen with Sammy Hagar unless they changed their name. That was a remarkable thing to say at that point. I mean, he really did have strong feelings that that band had to be fronted by Roth, even though he recognized how talented Sammy was. Yeah, I think that was you know in when Ted would talk about that. I mean, he would really get. I don't want to say worked up is the right word, but he, you could tell it was like a super um, emotional thing for him because he felt so pulled in different directions. And mm. I think we, I think we got that come through in the book that basically that love Sammy, great guy, loved making VOA, loved working on the Montrose record with him, and the band that you love, meaning Van Halen, is splitting up, and it doesn't feel right put anybody else in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, I've mentioned this in a, a few times before, and Ted didn't really put this in these in his exact words, but this is basically what he was trying to say. You know, he, you know, he was, he was, um, here, I'll, I'll put it this way. I, I, I think about in the, in the mid eighties when, uh, if people read Bill Moore magazine from back then from 85 or so 86, the stones were getting along so poorly. There was all this stuff being said from Jagger saying about Keith Richards and basically taking shots at each other. And there was actually a floated rumor that Daltrey was going to join the Stones. And I, you know, I don't know how true that was. It may have just been Keith whispering that to a reporter just to piss off, to piss off Jagger. But, um, you know, I think, I think if you think about it, we would all say that Roger Daltrey could front the Stones. He has the stature. He's got the voice. He, he could pull it off and he could do it, but it wouldn't be the Stones anymore. And I think that's what Ted was trying to get at. Like to him, without Dave and Ed, it wasn't. Van Halen. Mm-hmm. And of course, Ed and Al and the other guys in Van Halen disagreed, you know, and they disagreed about that. And that was the, that was the, the kind of the tension point there. And, you know, there's other examples. You can look at Sabbath for, with, with Dio. I mean, I think people would, would, um, you know, would, would agree that the Sabbath with, with Dio albums were tremendously successful, but they're different. And, you know, whether or not they should have been called Black Sabbath, it's, I think that's, <laughs> that ship has long since sailed and nobody cares. But, you know, it's not it's not the same band sure. with Dio rather than Ozzy. And I think that was where it came from. But I think, again, just because it was Sammy for Ted, it was if it had been some you know other guy, it would have been less of a contentious situation emotionally for Ted, where he would just would say, well, you know what? I, I don't think they should put this guy in the band. Mm-hmm. They should get Dave back. But knowing that it was a friend of his and a guy he'd worked with, it was really stressful for Ted. And he just felt really... You know, I think there was a lot of really raw feelings, as you can imagine, with all these guys. And Sammy felt, I can't speak for Sammy, but I kind of reading from um, my conversation with Ted that Sammy felt really betrayed by this. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like, what do you what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, you know, like, what do you mean? You know, so it's like it's uh, yeah, it's one of those things that he um, we wrote it up in the book. You know, I think he really felt it was important to let people know that it wasn't meant to be a shot at Sammy. That it's not that he doesn't respect Sammy or like Sammy. He didn't want anybody in there. He's like, I, I don't care who you put in there. Or Jagger, right? I don't want Mick Jagger in Van Halen. I don't want anybody, whoever it is, in Van Halen except David Lee Roth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that meeting where the ultimatum came was with Hagar and uh, his manager, Ed Leffler. Leffler's another right. fascinating character that's often not talked about. He w- has often been portrayed portrayed as the one the rational one that kept Van Halen and Hagar together and then when when he passed away 
like the lid couldn't be put back on Pandora's box. Um, sure. But what's interesting is in that meeting, Ted talks about how Leffler loses his temper when Ted refuses yes. to produce 5150. I mean, I, uh, uh, from sort of from what everything you know, what is your impression of Leffler and um, sort of his legacy of? Well, I think I think Ted recognized. I want to be careful how I say this is that Leffler wasn't coming into it as a neutral party, and that mm-hmm. makes perfect sense if you think about it. And so I think that was part of what what um, what led to that confrontation at that meeting was that obviously Leffler like Sammy recognized that this was a tremendous opportunity for them both. You know, Sammy as a musical uh, performer and as an artist, it was amazing to be able to join Van Halen. But also I think, I think that was the thing that he, you know, Ted was trying to, um, <laughs> to uh, meet with three people with at least one of them who had, had no interest in hearing really Ted's opinion on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, t- and basically it was all, you know, it was just, Rather than Ted meeting with a friend and saying, "Look, here's the deal. Here's how I feel about it," there was somebody there who who had a you know had only one agenda in mind. Yes. Without and so you know again, and I and it's not to to, um, to discount the fact that obviously Sammy was going to join Van Halen regardless of what what you know what Ted thinks, but I think that was the I think Ted saw it as somebody who didn't have a musical hand in it, but was there as Sammy's manager, and that's why. <laughs> I don't think there was some there was some tension there, but yeah, I mean that was yeah that was you know that kind of leaves it where where it is. I mean it wasn't like I don't think Ted and Leffler, you know, were calling each other on the phone all the time, but it was just that mm-hmm. was I think what what kind of was the part of the the thing there that Ted was angry that day, and I'm sure Leffler was angry that day because Ted was you know thinking like hey, this is between me and Sammy basically, or it should be between me and Sammy. We're just trying to have a conversation about this, and you know because that's what that's what it was. It was that Sammy came to Ted to basically make an appeal to be like, come on, man, you know, and, and understandably so those guys were meaning the Van Halen brothers and Sammy were, were, I presume angry and hurt or whatever the words you want to use upset and shocked that Ted wasn't like, of course, you know, of course it's Don, it's Ted, it's, it's Hagar, it's, it's the brothers, it's Mike, it's all the guys they'd all worked together before. So mm-hmm. I think that was, you know, it was a very contentious meeting. Yeah. Uh, the nature of what we're talking about here about Ted's book, and obviously you wrote it, um, it kind of means that sometimes you end up almost answering for Ted from what you know from your conversations with him. But if I ask Greg right now, do you think it was a coincidence that Sammy ended up in the band, that the the cars ended up with the same mechanic at the same time? And <laughs> Because it would be you know, it would be very easy to see that as a calculated move. Well, here's the thing. Um, I'm not trying to start any conspiracy theories. In all in all seriousness, the, they're already out there, right? But <laughs> you know, like, no, no. In all seriousness, I'm like, I, I'm just telling you this straight out that. Um, well, I had a conversation with Don Landy, who remembered that at one point Ed asked him about Sammy, like they were thinking about singers, and you know it wasn't like it wasn't like Don and uh, Alex and and uh, Ed were brainstorming singers. It was more like one day, like Don was working in fifty one fifty in nineteen eighty five, and you know it was like basically, what about Sammy? Like you know, like and, and I asked about and, and Don said Sammy's a great guy, and um, he, I think he, Don told me he told those guys like I don't think he's going to want to join your band or something like that, meaning mm-hmm. like because he thought like he had a good solo career going, but um, <laughs> you know, that's all that's all I know. That's all it was. It wasn't like Don told me like I was the guy who put it on the you know whatever. It was just but they you know they asked. They asked, it makes sense, they asked Don about Sammy because Don had worked with Sammy on two Montrose records. And, you know, he said, yeah, Sammy's a great guy, you know, mm-hmm. you know, great singer, great guy. But that was kind of like an offhanded comment. But and then Don said he told those guys, like, I don't think he's going to want to join your you know, band. If that's what you're thinking. And, you know, hey, guess what? A few months, whatever, weeks, months later or whatever he was, I don't know when he was back up there. But yeah. I'm, yeah, that's the only kind of titillating thing I would know about that, which isn't even that interesting. But, yeah, that's what they asked Don about him, which, which is not surprising. Yeah. And if we said that Sammy was opportunistic, that doesn't necessarily have to be or come with a negative connotation. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, you know, there's that stories that Sammy says that as soon as he heard Roth left from Ted, supposedly, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, he told his wife, I'm going to be in the band or something like that. So, you know, <laughs> it's like, you take it for what it's worth. That's the. That's become what it is. But, um, uh, sort of moving on just then to, to, to eat the Eat Him Smile record, which is obviously a, a tremendous record that Ted worked on. There's an interesting anecdote from that where Ted says that 
Uh, he had heard that like Eddie Van Halen was quite sort of almost shaken up by uh, after hearing Steve Vai, Billy Shane, Greg Bassanet, uh put together the end of Shy Boy. It's it's like right. it's a it's an exceptionally rare occasion that we have uh, have heard anything about Eddie talking about any other artists apart from like Eric Clapton or something when he in his youth. I mean, do you think that really came across as sort of a challenge to him? Did he did he try and was it like a um, a Beatles and Beach Boys kind of scenario where they're trying to one up each other. Yeah, I don't. You know, I, that that's. I can only tell you what Ted told me. That one thing. I mean, it wasn't as if we had a long conversation about that. It was just that he said I heard later, and I don't. Again, I don't know how he heard it. Um, you know, but that. Uh, yeah, the brothers were were kind of irked. Um, <laughs> and you know, um, if you think about it, that kind of makes sense, right? The sort of the tapping and sort of the the whole. I could understand maybe why Ed was like, hey, this is my thing. You know, this is my musical trademark. And these guys have sort of taken it and like put it on steroids with Dave's basically, surely with Dave's cheerleading to make it like over as over the top as possible. So, yeah, that's the story is what it is in the book. I don't know anything else about um, about that in terms of that, because I think, you know, Ted was pretty, um, you know, he he um, he saw those guys on a He saw those guys on occasion. For example, Ed and Don came to his office and sat with him while they worked on the sequence of 5150 and OUA12 but I you know I don't you know obviously there was um a falling out there and at that point in time it wasn't as if I think that he was talking to those guys on a regular basis at all it was yeah. just not that like that at all mm-hmm. uh one of the points of the book that put like the biggest smile on my face was to hear Ted lavish praise on Greg Bissonette like, he really put him over as one of the top drummers he ever worked with yeah um you know because because the um the thing that's really interesting is that Ted used him on sessions later that used him on the Doobie brothers. And I think a couple, like a, a Bette Midler record. And I think one other record where, yeah, Ted talks about like, you know, basically saying like, if I needed a drum part done today, I could call Bissonette mm-hmm. and he would come like six hours later, he'd show up and nail it. Amazing. He's like, he was just yeah. amazing just because he's just the, um, the verse. Utility and just the uh, you know he was the guy who could do sessions and not all drummers can do sessions he could do sessions but also do that you know do the um, the heavy rock stuff with Roth and all the other stuff but yeah he he uh, he used him on a number of the Doobie Brothers World Gone Crazy and if you look through his discography Ted used him on a number of things that are sort of like hidden like the the, the, the Bette Midler record and a few other things that you know hey I need a drummer I'm calling Greg Bissonette mm-hmm. yeah Ted and Don Landy obviously had a remarkable production engineering uh, duo that. Uh, I guess they, 1984 was the last record they worked on together, wasn't it? Correct. Right. Correct. Yeah. yeah, it was. Did, did they ever, uh, I'm not that saying that there was such a big flaw that a reconciliation, so to speak, was required, but did, did, have they at least come to an understanding in later years of any kind? Well, yeah, they talk on occasion now. Okay. And they email each other and stuff like that. I mean, you know, that's the thing. It's like, um, I've had people ask me that a lot of times and it's, it's uh, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is just like, water under the bridge for those guys it's just sort of like too you know you're looking back on something that happened 40 years ago like who cares but um yeah they I, they uh they have uh definitely reconciled and you know in in the time that's, that's passed since then and they they talk on occasion i've talked on the phone and have you know visited together and stuff like that so it's um you know they have a they have a long long history and i think that was one of the really the really cool things about doing the book was really realizing that wow, like Don and Ted met like in you know like this, they met in not, whatever 68 or something like that. That's when they met, and so wow, to have yeah. that many years of you know when when again when Ted was an artist, Don was an engineer, and sort of have that transition into becoming this this incredible duo of producer and engineer is a really cool thing. So yes, yeah, so a lot of lot of memories and a lot of a lot of mutual respect certainly. Yeah, uh, like we're now decades after the, the the birth of the internet, and yet the the music industry is still in a bit of a flux about how to make the best of itself, especially compared to years gone by. Did, did Ted talk much uh, with you about how he sees the industry today and how it might move forward? You know, um, I, I will tell you the one thing that Ted told me, which is kind of kind of humorous, is that he's like, you know, uh, I'm you know basically that he's he's seeing a rock, like streaming is paying off mm-hmm. again. He's never like told me the numbers, but he's like, yeah, it's definitely like you know I'm definitely seeing more. You know, when my checks come in from streaming, you see more money. And so I think he's like probably on board with the, with the shift. But, um, you know, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, he's not really, um, tapped into that. I mean, I think for him, it always comes down to the songs and the performances. I mean, for him, that's what he's a song guy. Like, you know, you hear the songs 
that that's what you know when you hear the performance in the song he's like that's what captures his attention and he really he really goes to but um yeah i mean you know he that was the one couple times he mentioned that you know i talked to him about streaming and he sort of mentioned that yeah like it was like definitely it's been it's been changing whatever that is and again i i know there's a big contentious debate about that i've said the word contentious like 50 times (laughs) sorry about that it's van halen there's no other word than contention that's a nice way of saying there's a lot of a lot of people are, you know, there are a lot of guys fighting. Uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy about the whole issue of streaming and, and um, with artists and stuff like that. But sure. from Ted's perspective, at least, and he's, you know, obviously got a big, a big uh, toehold in some of this stuff. Where, however, it works with the revenues that come in. But he's, he said, he's seen, um, you know, the numbers, numbers increase. Yeah, slightly off track for our last question now, but uh, just going back to Eddie Van Halen, uh, I think as fans, we all like to think of Eddie as like this endless well of creativity we've got visions of these boxes of tapes lined up against the wall at 5150 but the truth is he hasn't released albums regularly since 1998 that one van halen 3 was critically panned you know eddie doesn't know us he doesn't know us anything of course um but why do you personally think that he we haven't seen as much from van halen in the last 20 years as we might ought to have had so this has nothing to do with what Ted thinks. Yeah. I mean, I never even talked to Ted about that question. You know, I never asked him. It never even came up. I mean, I sure. think, I think, ultimately, I think you you have a, a person, meaning Ed, who probably looks at something like YouTube and thinks it's all out there. Like everything is like the bootlegs have leaked and everything. And so why should I put that stuff out? I think that's probably Ed and Al think that. You know, I also think, you know, um, just the the toll that it took on on Ed and I mean that with all all sympathy um, you know he was the guy who had to come up with all the music year after year after year after year and it's mm-hmm. sort of I can kind of understand where maybe he's like you know what I just don't I you know I wrote all these records I don't have the the drive and some people do I mean I uh, I saw John Hyatt a few years ago here in Tulsa he probably played for a hundred people and he had his band and he toured and he was playing and you could see that he got great joy out of that. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm going to guess that a lot of what drove Ed to want to continue to do it was playing with his son, which makes perfect mm-hmm. sense to me. But in terms of the, you know, the sort of the songwriting, I just, I maybe, you know, you just sort of at the point where you're just like, I'm burned out. Um, I, I taught college for a lot of years and you, you would talk to uh, you, me, I would talk to college athletes and they would talk about whatever sport they were playing. And, you know, these were people who were playing, they're not going to go on to play professional or anything. They were playing. It was a small university and uh, they were burned out. They were like done. They were, mm-hmm. It hadn't become fun anymore. It was like a job. And so I, and again, I have no idea, but I could imagine too, you just sort of, you know what? I did it all. I did it for years and I just want to, you know, whatever, play golf and relax, <laughs> and, you know, whatever, like build guitars and, and just mm-hmm. turn to other things that it's just not something that drives you anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, who knows? Maybe Ed's in his studio every day writing all these songs that, you know, maybe one day we'll 50 years from now we'll hear through some release. But, um, you know, that's just I could just imagine just being just you just don't have the drive to do it anymore because you've done it. Mm-hmm. Like what what else, what, other, what other mountain is there to climb? It'd be like, you know, Jimmy Page, like you need to write another Led Zeppelin album. Well, yeah, no, not really. <laughs> you know, like, how are you going to top or, or what else do you have to say? It's mm-hmm. like it's like you said it. You know, so that'd be the, my my guess. Again, totally on my uh, for me, not from anything from that Ted ever told me because we never talked about it. Sure, Greg, thank you so much for all your time today. That's really great, a great fun for me to talk about Van Halen, and hopefully, good fun for people to listen to as well. Uh, so, obviously, the book is Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life and music, uh, uh, in paperback at Amazon and on Kindle as well. Where other places should people look for the book? Or yeah, it's on Audible. Um, oh yeah, I would urge people to check out the Audible book. I actually, yeah, I actually a lot of good. I actually listened to it first before I read the book. I actually got the audible. It just ha- happened to be easier because we had a little bit of summertime here and the good weather. And I was able to go and, you know, walk the baby around the town for two and three hours to, to listen to the book. Yeah. It's available on audible. And then, um, I have, uh, if anyone's interested in copies signed by me, I have signed copies at templemanbook.com. Happy to sign books. And the other thing I would tell people is that, uh, I, you know, I spoke to, this is a little, this is a little exclusive for Brian. Is wow. that I spoke to Ted uh, about a week ago and, you know, I speak to him on occasion and, uh, he, he actually said to me, he's like, I really hope when this COVID stuff lifts that we're able to do the book signing that he really yeah. want, he was really looking forward to it. Um, you know, I think he really, 
enjoys his occasions to kind of go out and meet people and do this. It's not something he wants to be in the public eye, but he we did the, the Van Halen Rising book signing, and he really talked about how much he just liked it, just to talk to people and you know have uh, the opportunity to answer some questions. So I'm hoping in 2021 in California opens back up that that'll happen. Um, so he, you know, he, uh, I just heard from him in the last few days and he mentioned that uh, kind of unprompted. I wasn't saying, you know, I didn't bring it up. He mentioned it unprompted. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm excited about that and I'm hoping that it will happen soon. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Greg, I want to thank you very much for your time again and just for your huge contribution to chronicling Van Halen history. Uh, I guess we'll be back uh, on the podcast with another guest from the world of rock at some stage, but until then, remember that rock rules. 